Welcome to Vineyard Hopkinton. As we follow Jesus together, we experience the Holy Spirit, create a multicultural community, and pursue kingdom of God justice. You guys doing good? Yeah? Good, good. Uh, My name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here, uh, and we're excited that you're here with us this morning. Uh, If I can, can I ask you to start off this morning doing a little thought exercise. You don't have to get up and do any calisthenics or or, uh, any actual exercise, but just think in your head about something. And try and be as honest with yourself as you can, okay? You promise? You promise, Eli? You promise? Okay, good, good. Okay. Uh, So this is what I want us to do. Think about, but don't say out loud, please. (laughs) You'll understand why in a second, because it would be very, it could be very awkward. Uh, think about a common practice in our, just the way people live, that the Bible says is wrong. Common practice that the Bible says is wrong. There's probably a lot of options, so this should be relatively easy, but, but think about one in your head, but don't say it out loud. Uh, you got one? If not, I'll give you a freebie, so I'll make it easy on you. Uh, we, we'll, we can throw out gossiping, okay? We'll say gossiping. That's, the Bible says it's blatantly wrong, but everybody does it, right? Uh, not in a good way, but that's just what it is. Now, it's common in a group of people who have agreed upon a set, shall we say, uh, thing of like values and beliefs, that when somebody in the group acts in a way that is against the agreed upon values and beliefs, that we have a reaction, right? That we have a response. We've agreed that we're going to live in a way that follows Jesus. And if we act in a different way, you may, if I act in a different way, Eli may have a problem with that, right? Like that, that could be a thing. So, what if you're at Starbucks, Red Barn, the 110 Grill, whatever place, Pantai, you want to get fancier, you know, you choose. You're at, you're at a place out, and you see somebody who's sitting around you, and you hear their conversation. And their conversation is about somebody that you both know. And you know that they shouldn't be having that conversation about somebody you both know with another person, right? But you hear the whole thing going on. This is where I want you to be honest with yourself. What starts going through your head in that moment? What do you start to think about? How do you respond to it? Be honest with yourself. I bet that there's a lot of different options. Maybe uh, you're a very direct person and your immediate response is, I want to tell them that they're wrong. I want to like get up in their face and correct how they're acting. Probably not the majority of us, but maybe that's how your personality is and, and that's what you're thinking. Maybe you start thinking like, can you just stop it? You're making Christians look bad by acting like this. Like, we already got a bad rep. Why do you need to add to it? Maybe you wish that you could crawl away slowly because what starts to hit you is you're like, shoot, I did that yesterday. That was me 
And somebody may have heard me doing this thing, talking about somebody else, and I can't handle the fact that right now it's in my face and that I have to deal with it. What would be your response? And maybe a better question is, according to Jesus, what should our response actually be to that? Because it's going to happen. It has happened. It's what it is. Today we're finishing our series called This Changes Everything, and we're going to look at an attachment to the letter to the Colossian church. If you know your Bible, you may know what letter I'm referencing. It's a letter that was written to the leader, to one of the leaders, one of the main leaders of the church in Colossae, a man named Philemon. And this letter was sent along with Colossians. They were sent at the same time. And because this is how Paul had his letters read, it would have been read in public in front of the entire church because he didn't send private letters. He only sent things that got read in front of the entire church. And it's a letter that deals with an issue that Paul says goes against the way of Jesus. It deals with cultural normalcy. And it shows us that there has to be an expectation that when we follow Jesus, we become completely and totally changed. We can't just be the same that we were before. There's a lot of theology in this, and there's a lot of practicality. And you know, like, I don't, a few of you in the room probably like to geek out on theology. Anybody like to geek out on it? I enjoy it. I like digging into it. It's fun. Um, I don't like doing it with philosophy majors because they get annoying. But like, I do like digging into theology. Um, If you're a philosophy major, I still love you, but just you know, hold it in a little bit. Um, I, I love digging into the Bible and like trying to figure out like why what was written was actually written and how this is actually supposed to like work and affect me. And like, I love all of that. I love digging into the head part of it. But what I really, really love about it is that it's so practical that I dig into it, not because it's just like a fun mental exercise, but because it actually changes me, because it affects me, because I walk away different when I learn more about who Jesus is and what he's up to. And so that's what I hope happens for us this morning, that we can pay attention to what Jesus is poking at in our hearts as we dig into his word and not just let it be something fun that we learn or something that we wish we didn't have to learn, but something that can actually transform us. If you're the type of person that is an issues person, you get passionate about things, then I think you should pay attention this morning. If you're the type of person who struggles to read the Bible because you feel like it just feels outdated or hypocritical, I think you should pay attention this morning. If you're the type of person who has a heart for the oppressed, you should pay attention this morning. And if you're the type of person who believes that Jesus does actually begin to change everything in our world, then pay attention this morning. 
Colossians is connected to Philemon by this one little verse in Colossians 4, 9. I'm sending Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, one of your own people. He and Tychicus, I think, will tell you everything that's happening here. So let's pray, and then we'll dig into this. Jesus, I do just thank you that your word reveals things. And that the more that we can understand what you've already given us, what you've already said to us, the more we can be able to encounter your truth and your personality and your character. And we can be changed by that. And I pray that you will just come and change us this morning. Allow us to encounter the real living Jesus. Let us be transformed in your presence, Jesus. And God, I just pray for the ways that we all, every single one of us, struggles to live in kind of the way of Jesus. Will you meet us in that? Will you give us grace for others and grace for ourselves? But at the same time, will you give us such a strong desire to be more like you that we're not content to just stay where we're at? but that we keep pushing forward because we see you and we want to be more like you. So come and move in us and in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, if you have a Bible or you look at it on your phone, you can open to Philemon. It's after Titus and before Hebrews. If you're looking for it or you can read it on the screen. But this is what it says, Philemon, verse 1. It's only a one-chapter book. This letter is from Paul, a prisoner for preaching the good news about Christ Jesus and from our brother Timothy. I'm writing to Philemon and to our sister Aphia and our fellow soldier Archippus and to the church that meets in your house. May God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. I always thank my God when I pray for you, Philemon, because I keep hearing about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people. And I am praying that you will put into action the generosity that comes from your faith as you understand and experience all the good things we have in Christ. Your love has given me much comfort and joy, my brother, and for your kindness has often refreshed the hearts of God's people. Uh, if you're going to ever have a conversation where you call somebody out on something they've done wrong, this is a beautiful way to start the conversation right there. Here is what you do. You know, the sandwich method or whatever. This is even better. It's like three all in one. He's like, Philemon, you've done so many good things. You're such a good person. You've been so aware of the gospel. Well done. And you're so generous. And so today, I want to appeal to your generosity. And then the third thing you need to do is you need to remind them of your already pre-existing healthy relationship, which, friends, is not an avoided part of dealing with conflict in 
any relationship, but especially the church, have a pre-existing healthy relationship before you start to dig into it. Uh, that's a beautiful way to deal with it. Uh, now you know Paul tells us everything, right? Uh, verse 8, that is why I am boldly asking a favor from you. I could demand it in the name of Christ because it is the right thing for you to do. But because of our love, I prefer simply to ask. Consider this a request from me, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner for the sake of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you to show kindness to my child Onesimus. I became his father in the faith when I am, while I am here in prison. This is getting at what the issue is. He wants Philemon to show kindness to Onesimus. And he says that it's something he could demand of him, but he doesn't. He asks instead. Uh, and like I kind of, like when he says, when he calls himself an old man, like I, I picture like this kind of strong dude all of a sudden grabbing a cane and like stooping, being like, come on, bro. Like, look at me. Don't you want to? Like, look at me. Like he, he's playing it really, really well right here. Verse 11. Onesimus hasn't been, much, hasn't been of much use to you in the past, but now he is very useful to both of us. And I'm sending him back to you, and with him comes my own heart. I wanted to keep him here with me while I am in these chains for preaching the good news, and he would have helped me on your behalf. But I didn't want to do anything without your consent. I wanted you to help because you were willing, not because you were forced." It seems you lost Onesimus for a little while so that you could have him back forever. He's no longer like a slave to you. He is more than a slave, for he is a beloved brother, especially to me. Now he will mean much more to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge it to me. And then uh, my Bible has it in caps. I, Paul, write this with my very own hand. I will repay it, and I won't mention that you owe me your very own soul. <laughs> That's heavy-handed. There's no way around that. I wouldn't recommend using that line, especially in an argument with your spouse. You will. You might not even be on the couch after that one. It might be like, go to a hotel. Yes, my brother, please do me this favor for the Lord's sake. Give me this encouragement, <clears throat> excuse me, in Christ. I am confident as I write this letter to you that I will that you will do what I ask and even more. Okay. So who is Onesimus according to what Paul is saying? He's saying that Philemon lost him, that Paul found him that Paul and probably Onesimus feel that they need Philemon's uh, 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 consent for what it is that he's asking. He's saying that Onesimus is no longer like a slave, and he's not just a slave. He's saying that he's now a beloved brother to Paul, and he should be a man and a brother to Philemon, and that Onesimus owes Philemon something that Paul is saying that he'll pay. You put all that together— Philemon, or Onesimus is a runaway slave who was owned by Philemon. He stole money 
from Philemon in order to run away because slaves don't have money. That makes sense. Um, and this is where it gets interesting. <clears throat> in order, I mean, runaway slaves don't usually run away if life is peachy. I mean, they're still slaves, but you know what I'm saying. We'll, we'll, we'll spread that out a little bit more like as we break down what it looks like for them. But it meant that there was something between the two of them. And he goes looking for Paul, which means he felt like Paul would be able to fix the issue between Onesimus and Philemon. That adds a little extra to it. Onesimus isn't the bad guy in this, and Philemon's not innocent, or vice versa. There's probably a little bit of something going on here, and he needed Paul to mediate. But, so all that's fine, right? But the problem that everybody has with this book, agreed, is why doesn't Paul just say that it's bad and that Onesimus needs to be freed? Why are we like playing this slavery game and just allowing it to continue on if Philemon chooses? Like, how is that okay? How are we okay with that at all? And I agree. And if we're being honest and we look at the New Testament, there's a lot of confusing back and forth when it comes to slavery in the New Testament. And we can be honest about that, right? That it's not all crystal clear. You know, in the Old Testament... God is clearly against slavery. He frees Israel from slavery whenever Israel starts to go into the practice of slavery. They get a severe consequence um, from God. Like, he is anti this 100%. And then in the New Testament, he's anti. But it's confusing. In, In Colossians, which would have just been read to Philemon and all of the people sitting there, In Colossians 3.11, it says, In this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us. So all of these delineating things socially that we used to allow to separate us no longer matter in the kingdom of God. That's what Paul just lays out. Very clear, right? Very obvious. Forget all of them. Eat, you know, Jews, you like to separate yourself from the Gentiles? Go have dinner with them. That's controversial. Like, slaves, go eat with your masters, and they get the seat of honor. Like, that's controversial. But that's what the new reality is in the kingdom of God, Paul says. That's radical. It changes everything for lots and lots of people. But 10 verses later... Paul says this in Colossians 3.22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything you do. Try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. Serve them sincerely because of your reverent fear of the Lord. What? The term for this is like behavioral slave codes. How are we okay with having that? 
when everybody's equal. That's problematic, right? And he didn't stop there. I just didn't read the whole thing. It doesn't get better. What is going on? These two things cannot coexist. They don't line up. They don't match. What is Paul doing? And there's, there's multiple levels of frustration. There's just the blatant stuff. But I think if we go below the, the, the obvious stuff, I think part of what we're asking when we're looking at this is we're saying, wait a second. Does spiritual actually affect natural? Does Paul actually believe that, that, that spiritual equality affects social equality? Or are they two completely separate things? Does spiritual equality, which is a belief that all people are equal in the kingdom of God under Jesus, actually affect social equality? A belief that all people as human are equal in our world, regardless of social status. Does one actually affect the other? And if Paul actually believes that the answer to that is yes, then why doesn't he say it clearly? Why doesn't he just call out slavery and say, Onesimus needs to be freed, Philemon. I can't believe you're living in sin. You need to change this today. Why doesn't he do that? Why does he ask? So let's talk about three things, hopefully quickly-ish. Ish. Gives myself an extra minute, right? Uh, Slavery. The church and culture. So Greco-Roman world, we think of slavery, we think of the uh, African, European, American slave trade and all that went within that. It was different in first century Greco-Roman world. I'm never saying that it's better or that it's okay. Okay, we're clear on that one. Never saying that at all, but it is different. So understanding differences can be helpful. So in their time, It was normative for anybody who had a modest income to have slaves. So how many people here, I'm not going to have you raise your hand because that could, you know, you'll understand in a second. But think in your head, are you middle class or above? If the answer is yes, and you lived 2,000 years ago, you probably had at least two to three slaves in your house because everybody did who was middle class or above. That was a normative part of life. If you were really wealthy, you might have had 10. You know, like, woohoo! Um, it was common. Everybody had slaves um, in their culture. Now, a difference between it was that in the African slave trade, kidnapping, uh, we, forced slavery, we understand. We, we know what it was. Greco-Roman slavery was a little bit different Whoever won the, the war took slaves, took, you know, like prisoners of war. So if you lost, you became a slave. If you won, you gained slaves. Uh, and the poor would often volunteer to become slaves because it was better than being poor and homeless and on the street. Um, so there was a willingness, I hate to use that word, but there was a little bit more of a willingness uh, because of a justice issue, that there wasn't actually equality in that. 
Neither one's good, just clarifying. And then freeing slaves, because that's what we want Paul to do. People didn't free slaves back then. It wasn't much of a thing. And when they did, what often happened is that people would return to being slaves because nobody would hire them. And so if you were a slave and you get freed and then you can't find a job and then you don't have any money and then you're homeless, you're much more willing to go back to your former owner and to sign back up again. Again, this is a justice issue. If I was living 2,000 years ago, my sermon would sound different because I would be saying, church, it's time for us to step up and to fix this issue. Why aren't we hiring people who are former slaves? Why aren't we allowing for the, you understand where I'm saying, but I don't live 2,000 years ago. First century Greco-Roman Empire. That was not a reality for them. So, when we look at that reality and we think about the church, every church was a house church back then. They didn't have buildings. They had houses. Uh, Houses that could host 30 to 60 people-ish required, that required a lot of work. Every week, 30 to 60 people show up. You you guys want 60 people to show up at your house today? Like, no, you don't, because it requires a lot of work. You got to clean. You got to cook. They cooked a meal every single week. They got everything ready. They'd get spaces for the kids ready, uh, uh, separate gender spaces, because that's how they did things uh, at times back then. Uh, if there was a baptism, that was even a bigger thing. Like, there was a lot of work that went into this, and then people arrived, and you got to uh, provide, you know, cleaning for their feet, you know, because of the dust and stuff like that, and, and then you got to get them comfortable, and you got to take... It takes a lot of work, right? So anybody who has space for 30 to 60 people in their house is wealthy. Which means every single church that Paul was a part of outside of Israel, because Israel, by and well, outside of Jewish homes, because Jewish homes by and large did not do this, every other church, every other Gentile church would have been hosted by someone who owned slaves. It's almost impossible to think about the early church without realizing that there was slavery involved in the every week goings on of church. So even if Paul disagreed with slavery completely, which I think that he did, it's hard to see how he could have wiped out a practice swiftly that was happening in every single church that he ever went to, talked to, prayed for, wrote a letter to, or heard of. It was that pervasive everywhere. We're not talking about just Onesimus. It's everywhere. So slavery, the church, and culture. What do we do with culture? How do we deal with anti-Jesus ways of living that are normal in culture and have crept into the church? Because that's what's facing Paul. How do I do this? And I think Paul points the way forward and it is masterful the way that he gets to what he wants in a way that looks very different than how we would do it. But in our, you know, in churches, we often use the term culture and we don't actually know what it means. Uh, We think that it means like other people, everybody else, or secular 
How many people even know what secular means when you say that word? It means non-religious, by the way, not like sinful going to hell. It just means non-religious. But we use all these terms to describe something that we're not quite sure what it means. And so that's, that's the term that we use, culture. But honestly, it is way too broad of a term to try and narrow down in that same way. You know, I live in Westboro, for instance, and if I go to Panera on any morning of the week, I will tell you what I will hear being spoken. English, of course, Portuguese, Spanish, Russian, Hindi, and uh, let's see, what else? Maybe some French uh, and, oh, definitely Mandarin. Every morning, I go to Panera a lot. That's what I hear every, every single morning that I go to Panera. Um, this implies at least like six, seven, eight different cultures, not including people who speak English but are from different places. Uh, and it's not even mentioning, you know, like the different dialects within like China or, or India. Uh, Westboro schools, they take off holidays for four major religions, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, and Hindu. I can walk from my house to a variety of ethnic restaurants. I can drive to a whole lot more, including grocery stores, within about 10 minutes. Westboro is a town of 22,000 people. That is not big. So blow this up to a country of 330 million people. Can you understand where the word culture may be a little too tiny to actually be able to make any sense? And just like Paul, we're representing Jesus in a world that looks very different very quickly. And so the New Testament, it doesn't use the word culture. It uses the term the world when it talks about this. And it's very clear that we need to resist being conformed to the world. Romans 12.2 says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Don't just be like everybody else, but allow yourself to be changed by encountering Jesus. And as you're being changed, don't stop with just you, but allow that change that's going on with you begin to affect other people because we're called to then go and make disciples of all people in all places and to tell them about Jesus. And then as we're doing that, we're a part of Jesus' plan of building the kingdom of God that he wants to see, that he's going to see in Revelation 7-9. After this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language standing in front of the throne and before the lamb jesus is telling us don't just be like everybody else but choose to be a part of actually changing lives as your life is being changed i love what andy crouch wrote about culture he said the more we do this the more fully human we become we become entwined in relationships of empowering mutual dependence And the less bound and tempted we will be by the culture. And the less bound we are by the culture, the more we are able to actually influence culture around us, even sometimes up to very large scales, because we are creating and sustaining real alternatives to it. The more fully human we become, the less bound we are by what's around us. But... 
what I'm laying out is not what most people do today. You know, what most people do today when they see something that they don't, they don't like, go to YouTube. You can see it. They get a big social media following because they rant and they rave and they go crazy publicly with a camera in front of thousands, maybe millions of people and tell everybody how wrong everybody else is and how right they are. You can find literally millions of these videos online and it is not the way of Jesus. And in fact, I would say anybody that claims that they're doing that in the name of Jesus is wrong. Is that clear enough? (laughs) I think that's completely wrong. Because this is what I think the way of Jesus is. Andy Crouch says this, our mission is not primarily to engage the culture, but to love our neighbor. Because our neighbor is not an abstract collective noun, like culture, but a real person in a real place. And by God's grace, the cultural creativity required to fully love that neighbor may end up having lasting influence. Or by God's grace, we may be spared the complexity and compromises that can creep in with cultural power. We need to stop focusing on abstract and focus on real people in real places because that's how Jesus works. Real people, real places. So if we look at Paul and Onesimus and Philemon, that's what we see him doing here. He's not looking at some abstract Roman Empire cultural phenomena that needs to be adjusted. He's saying, what about this man? And how can I restore his humanity? Paul didn't attempt to destroy the cultural standard of slavery, although I'll admit, I wish that he did at the same time. It would have saved a lot. A whole lot. But what he did is he addressed his friend in a public letter with tons of relational force. Because it seems that Paul assumed that Philemon's worldview had already been turned inside out and upside down by Jesus. Which is why he asked Philemon and the Colossian church to remember how much Jesus had already changed their lives. How different they were from what they once were before. Because when you do that, then you start to see things differently. And you start to realize the way that the gospel starts to make things that you once thought were normative were no longer okay and were no longer normal. And yes, slavery in first century Roman Empire is normal, it's how people lived. But the gospel changed whether or not we should be seeing it as normal whether or not we should just accept that. Because everything normal should be questioned in the light of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the truth for us is that everything that we call normal in our world right now, we should be looking at through the lens of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we may start to realize that some things have got to change because they don't match up.
everything normal is different. Which is why Paul isn't only focused on abolishment of slavery, although he did want that. But he's focused on restoring, on making Onesimus family. That is his push as we read his letter. That's why he calls Onesimus his child. And that's why he says that he is now Onesimus' father in verse 10. That's why he tells Philemon, the man's owner, that he now needs to view him as his brother. Can you imagine what that gasp would have sounded like in the Colossian church when that one came out? All the slaves looking around like, hey, things are changing. Like things would have been different at that moment. N.T. Wright says that Paul has a much more ambitious plan than just making him legally free. He wanted to make him into a human being. The primary thing for Paul is for Onesimus to be seen as equal in the eyes of Philemon, his master, and the entire church. Because when they recognize the truth that he is now a member of the family, that begins to change everything in his life. Because as a follower of Jesus, he is a brother. He is a part of the family. And the reality for Onesimus is that a slave who is completely without a family, when they become a slave, they are like completely disconnected now is welcomed into the family. He is restored to his humanity. And that would have changed so much for Onesimus. The good news for us, 2,000 years later, friends, is that if you feel like you're without a family, if you feel like you've been orphaned, like you've been cut off, like you are completely alone, the reality is that you are not. You are a part of something. You are loved as a brother or a sister. You are a part of the family. And yes, that means you've got to deal with our awkwardness. And yes, that that means that you've got to deal when we sometimes say things that you're like, oh man, I don't like that. Or, or you know, you, you didn't give me the piece of cake that I really wanted, but that's okay. Or maybe, you know, my brother came and took my cupcake and I really didn't like that one. And yes, it means that all the family things are a part of it, but it also means that we will support you and that we will love you and that we will stand by you and that you are no longer alone because you are a part of the kingdom, the family of God. And when you've been orphaned, when you've been disconnected, when you've been cut off and you're now in a family, you realize how much of that affects you and how deeply that goes. And this is the bridge from the spiritual to the social that we see in Paul's theology and ideology. Because Paul was grateful for but not content with just spiritual equality because he saw the reality of the cross as something that began to change everything in our world. You see, the kingdom of God the way of Jesus 
it affected. It affects. And it continues to keep affecting every single thing in our world. It never stops changing it, renewing it, making it whole, restoring us to his vision in the beginning. And that includes all social constructs that have been put out there. That's the reality. But why didn't Paul just say set the slaves free, right? You're still, you're like, but Stephen, come on, just say the thing. Like, why didn't he say, and I don't know. I don't know. I can't talk to the guy. I'm not quite sure. But in his way of addressing slavery, this is what happened. Freedom came for Onesimus. And I would guess for a lot of other people in their church. There was a change in how slaves were viewed within the church at large. They now became human and family. He, address, he gave us a way of addressing a majority cultural practice that went against the way of Jesus. And he gave us a deeper understanding of the way that Jesus begins to change everything in our lives. It's not a small thing to say that it began to change everything in repercussions that were still being felt today. And so let me show you what I think that this looks like for us as we begin to end. If you can throw up the perfect, well done, Joshua. Nice work. Uh, so this is me living a culturally normative life. I do what everybody else does. Before Jesus, nothing different, right? Some good, some bad, but that's what everybody does, right? You know, maybe I try a little harder sometimes. Other times I don't try so hard. I have my things that I want to get away with, so I don't do them. You know, like that's just how I live. That's normal. Go to the next one. This is what happens when me living that way begins to be affected by Jesus. I come further and further into Jesus and things begin to change. I begin to be transformed and changed. There's a new life that begins to grow in me. And all of a sudden, I'm not okay with just living the same way that I was. I'm not okay with doing the same things that I was doing before. And I'm not quite sure why it is. But I just know that I think it's Jesus that's like making me uncomfortable when I'm doing those things. I think it's him that's making me look at things differently. And go to the next one. This is what happens when I become a follower of Jesus, living life in a new way with new realities. It's obvious. The way I live is different. And I'm around people. Friends, coworkers, neighbors, classmates. And as I'm around those people and they see the way that I'm living, I tell them who his name is and how he changed things for me because that's what I'm supposed to do. That's what he wants me to do. And so I tell him the stories of how Jesus met me and changed me and transformed me. And see, what happens is that they're in their little thing just doing, doing life. And then all of a sudden, Jesus starts to draw closer to them because they're encountering Jesus in different ways and they can't avoid it anymore. And then hopefully, just hopefully, they begin to be changed too. By Jesus. As Andy Crouch said, by God's grace, the cultural creativity required to fully love that neighbor may end up having lasting influence 
You see, big sticks and cameras and social media followings do not lead to this. And in fact, often those create more issues than they're even worth. But relationship and a willingness to be transformed by Jesus, that leads to your life being changed and to other people seeing the difference inside of you. So worship team, come on up. Friends, at its base level, the story of Onesimus is a story of freedom. It's a story of freedom from literal bonds, freedom from societal and uh, cultural standards, expectations, and normalcy. It's freedom from a fear of change. It's freedom from pride. And it's a freedom that only Jesus can bring because freedom matters to Jesus. He wants us to be free. He wants us to be free from literal bonds. He wants us to be free from societal and cultural standards. He wants us to be free from pride. He wants us to be free from addiction. He wants us to be free from spiritual oppression. He wants us to be free from death and anything that brings death. But freedom isn't free. And that's not a campaign slogan or an army poster or whatever it is. It's just truth. It's the reality. His freedom cost everything. But he did it on purpose because we matter that much. And he wanted us to be reconciled to him. And he wanted to bring justice to our world. And he wanted to see all people who are bound up in any way to be freed from the things that hold on to them. And to see our world stop being so broken, but actually become the way that he wants it to be. And so he died for us. Let's stand. The question for us is, What chains are on you? What's holding you back? What are you bound by? Could be huge. Could be really, you know, something that you're like, I'm not even sure if people would count it. But what is it that's holding on to you this morning? Because Jesus wants to bring you freedom. He wants to come and to move right here and right now in your life. And just like slavery wasn't gotten rid of in in a minute, sometimes the things we need deliverance from don't come immediately. Sometimes they do, and that's beautiful, and we thank Jesus when it happens. But sometimes they take a long time. Sometimes it takes a willingness to keep saying, I did it again. somebody else sometimes it takes a willingness to say I'm human and this was not good but I'm going to keep working and then it starts to happen over time deliverance isn't always instant unfortunately it will be but it's not yet but you know what is instant the presence of Jesus And when you're in the presence of Jesus, everything begins to change.
because you can't avoid it. You can't run away from it. He's here and he wants to come and move.